Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, New Year's is primarily the only universally accepted holiday throughout the world. Think about it for just a second. You know the British are not celebrating July 4th, right? Okay? Uh, people of the Buddhist faith, the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Hindu faith are not celebrating Christmas. Nobody celebrates Boxing Day except the Canadians, I'm pretty sure. Uh, people from Central America don't exactly celebrate Columbus Day, you know, the day we remember that Columbus came to the New World and gave everybody dysentery and disease and destruction for all the natives of that particular area. So, as I said, New Year's Day is primarily the only universally accepted holiday. But it's quite fascinating as you really dig into the culture of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, all the traditions are, are so vast. So for Americans, what we watch the ball drop in Times Square, we have this amazing countdown. Uh, in Denmark, I found uh, that they saved their unused dishes and together with their families and friends they smash it against their homes on New Year's Day and that's supposed to bring them good luck. In Ecuador they celebrate the new year by burning paper filled scarecrows at midnight and they also burn photographs from the last year all in the name of of good fortune. In Colombia they carry around a suitcase all day long in hopes that they'll have safe and good travel for the year. Uh, In Russia they're weirdos. Um They uh, jump into a frozen lake carrying a tree trunk. Come on, Putin. What's going on there? I don't know. In Chile, families spend the night literally in the cemetery with family members who have gone on before them. In South America, in some countries, they wear certain colored underwear, and that's to determine their fate for the new year. So red underwear means that they're going to find love. Gold means wealth. White signifies peace. I wonder what white with a little bit of brown mark in it means uh, for, for the new year. So in our American tradition, we well, we do what? For many of us, we probably today are going to eat collard greens and black-eyed peas in hopes that you'll have better wealth for the year. But the age-old saying that what you do on New Year's Day is what you do for the rest of the year. So spending time with y'all, oh, this is going to be, it's going to be the best New Year's ever. Um, but most of us do something. Uh, we resolve to improve something about ourselves, right? So some of us have probably resolved to quit something, quit smoking. Uh, we've resolved this year to fall in love, to spend more time with family, to spend less money, to get organized, to lose weight. 45% of Americans say that they resolve something at New Year's Eve, and 8% say by the end of the year they've actually fulfilled their New Year's resolution. So this morning, instead of coming with some catchy sermon of how we can resolve to be better in this particular area for the year, I want us to do something radically different. I want us to look at a text that's going to invite us to radically shift the way that we look at life, which radically shifts the way that we live our lives. So take a look at the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5. If you have your physical Bibles or digital Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me there. Now, what we need to understand about Philippians uh, is, is quite unique. Philippians is a young church. They're a church start, if you will. And 
and they're facing this new world and a new way of following Jesus. And so these believers in Philippi are faced with the challenge of becoming new in Christ as they're trying to live into the world. Imagine that there's a drastic change in the way you've lived your life pattern, your philosophy, your, your everyday thinking, and now you're in this great journey of redemption in Christ. And to this, Paul writes this amazing letter. Now, if I was to pick one letter of Paul where I'm like, this is the one, I want this to be my favorite letter from Paul, it's Philippians. I have somewhat of like a man crush on the book of Philippians. And you can only read the first few verses uh, where Paul writes this. I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you with great joy because I celebrate the partnership we have in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul loves this Philippians church. If I was to write a letter to Mosaic, I would just say, take the book of Philippians. Here it is. This is what I write to you. So what sets Philippians apart from different churches? You see, Paul is always writing over some sort of issue to some of these churches. In the specific church he is writing to, there's always something of an issue of disunity. But how Paul addresses the church in Philippi is much different than how he addresses the church in Galatians. Remember how aggressive Paul was in the book of Galatians when he told those people to go and emasculate themselves? Instead, like Philippi, Philippians is the complete opposite of that. So we know Paul is addressing something, but he's much more gentle. He's mild with them. He's easy-handed with them. So what is it that Paul is trying to rally this community around? What is it he's trying to speak to them? We'll read this in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Philippians came to its name by Alexander the Great's father Philip of Macedonia. So when he overcame this small little town, he did the humble thing of renaming the town after himself, right? That's the humble thing to do. I think I'll name this place after me. Uh, that's such a guy thing to do. Uh, and so he renamed the town Philippi. And, and when Alexander uh, took over this particular area, he, he trained Philippi in a way that his father wasn't able to do that. And then when the Romans came and overtook Philippi, they made it a retirement garrison for people that are retiring from the military. So Philippi was a great place of the Greco-Roman culture. It was a great place of philosophy, a great place of thought. It was a, it was a place of the imperial cult worship of Caesar. And when you think about the Greco-Roman culture, it really has continued to shape our culture the Western civilization as we know it. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the gods were revered. From Poseidon to Athena, the gods were viewed as these beings that they did whatever they wanted. 
And the ancient stories of Zeus are absolutely infamous. And although people did not view their gods in the same way, most of the Greco-Roman gods were viewed as these powerful beings who lorded over human beings and wanted to take advantage of them. There was a common phrase in the ancient, it was like this, it is the will of the gods. So when life was fruitful, it was because the gods willed it. When life was difficult, it's because the gods willed it. When tragedy happened in your life, it was because the gods willed it. But above all, the gods ruled, the gods were in control, the gods gave you life or they gave you death. So when Paul pins this phrase about Jesus, he is clashing against the very culture that these people are used to. When Paul writes about having the mindset of Jesus, the mindset of the Son of God, I'm sure these people were beginning to click and understand, of course, what would God want? What would God need? God lords over us. God controls things that happen in our world. But then Paul begins to change the message in a way that the Greco-Roman culture wouldn't have understand. Because he says, God chose to become flesh and humble himself like a servant. This is a complete radical shift in the understanding of how the Greeks and the Romans viewed the gods of their times. Why would the gods humble themselves to be like a servant? God chose to take on the form of a servant, Paul writes. This is backwards. Let's sink into this for just a second. When you really think about the ministry and life of Jesus, it is the life of a servant. Jesus did not come to make our lives miserable, to take advantage of our weakness compared to his greatness, to wreak havoc in our culture. Instead, Jesus came to serve us. From his humble beginnings, being born in a stable to a peasant virgin and her carpenter husband, and raised in this backwoods town of Nazareth under the thumb of Roman imperialism, Jesus chose the life of a servant. From his willingness to live the life of a homeless man, literally traveling around the countryside, not gaining any income for himself, performing miracles and teaching about the kingdom of God, and his willingness to put his hands on the most low of society, Jesus lived a servant's life. But what should baffle us about the life of Jesus, but not necessarily the way that he touched the lives of the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the unfavorable, but it was by the way that he spent his hours leading up to the cross. Caitlin read a passage earlier from John chapter 13. You would think Jesus in the hours before he's about to be arrested and brutally beaten for all of mankind, he would make sure it is known that he is the greatest among anyone on earth. But what does Jesus choose to do? He doesn't call in a, a slave or tell one of the disciples they have to do this. Instead, Jesus gets down on his hands and knees. He wraps a, a towel around his waist, puts a basin of water in between his legs, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Ladies, we would all attest to this. Guy's feet are absolutely disgusting. Jennifer often at night will tell me I shouldn't touch her with my feet because Guy's feet are absolutely disgusting. They're callous, they're nasty, they're smelly. We can't cut our toenails right for whatever reason. We like to do like these weird shapes that don't make any sense whatsoever. People literally will cover their mouths so they don't vomit at the looking at our feet. Imagine that the Son of God is washing the feet of the disciples. People wore sandals in this day the buildup of dirt and bacteria and grime from the street. And, and when you really think about who Jesus 
who he's washing their feet, begin to think about that he comes to Thomas, the man in a couple days who would doubt his resurrection. He comes to James and John, the two brothers that were so infamously fighting with Jesus over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He comes to Peter's feet, who would deny him three times when Jesus needed him the most. And Jesus got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, who would commit the most despicable act in human history. The Son of God, God himself, chose to wash the disciples' feet. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus, in the hours to come, would be falsely accused. He would be spat upon. He would be punched in the mouth and the nose. He would be beat by an angry crowd. He would be dragged before Romans, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, to appease the crowd, would, would have Jesus flogged and beaten instead of crucified, which they first requested. Do we understand what flogging is? It's literally being stripped naked, having your body stretched across a beating block, and having a cat of nine tails literally ripping away at flesh and muscle and bone. And as if that wasn't awful enough, Jesus bore the cross. He literally bore this railroad tie-sized crossbeam thrown on his back, literally walking through the streets of Jerusalem up to his execution site. They nailed one hand in, and most likely to get his hand in the pre-existing hole on the other side, they would have had to dislocate Jesus' shoulder, nailing the other hand in, crossing his feet, and nailing them together, lifting him up and coming to a plunging stop. And there, the Son of God, to even breathe for the next few hours, would have to somehow push up off his nailed hands and feet to catch a breath. And Jesus, even in this moment, is showing us how much of a servant he is by crying out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So when Paul writes, we should have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Our minds should begin to blow open with the understanding that God chose humility. God chose service. And I think all of us would agree with this statement, right? 100% Paul, I agree with you. Jesus is awesome. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice and service. But what do we do with this text? What is Paul actually calling us to? Will we skip back to verse 1. Go back to verse 1 for just a second. What is he trying to get at here? He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement of being united with Christ, if any comfort with his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in mind and one in spirit. I'm guessing that nearly 99.9% .9 of us in this room have one of these, have some sort of a smartphone. It's pretty hard to find a flip phone these days unless you're just trying to stay off the grid, like all together, a burner phone. Um, I'm not really a huge app guy. You see these people that have literally like hundreds of apps on their phone. And mainly the reason I don't have a ton of apps on my phone is because I, I hate notifications. I don't want my phone blowing up every single second with something going on in the world. And so the apps I have, I limit them to things like I want to hear what the cane score is, the Hurricanes, see if they're winning. Uh, I want to know if there's some sort of major weather alert going on. And then I have CNN and WRL update me to see if there's some sort of major news going on in the world. And of 
course, I occasionally get these alerts from CNN and WRL that I'm kind of like, really? This is what you thought was important? Like, when I got the update last year that Kim Kardashian had a $10 million diamond stolen from her. Like, I just needed to know that right now. Or the other night when I found out that Ronda Rousey lost in the first 48 seconds of the match. That was so important for me to understand. But then this week, I did get the notification that Carrie Fisher, known to 30, 40-somethings like myself as our first crush, died. It's sad, but then I get another notification this week to tell me that another thousand people were killed in Syria, and it brings things back into perspective. Or yesterday, dozens were shot and killed in Istanbul, and 28 died in a Baghdad suicide bomber attack. That's urgent news. That's something I need a notification for. This is what Paul is trying to get at with these Philippians. Can you just hear the urgency in his voice? He uses a good therefore in this statement. As, as urgent as Paul is saying, he's saying, if you've gotten anything out of this whole thing of following Jesus, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit of God means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Paul is building up to this moment. Whatever he's about to say is urgent and important. It's a good classic if-then statement. Paul is saying that if you have any unity in Christ, if you have any comfort in God's love, if you have anything within the Spirit of God, that's leading up to a big then. I think what Paul is trying to tell us, he's, he's saying something that's massively important. It's building up to this moment. And what does he say here in verse 3? Then do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Look not to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Remember, Paul is writing to this Greco-Roman culture that they believed the gods imposed their wills. The gods did whatever they wanted, but also people lived into that mentality. We often shape gods in the likeness we want for ourselves. And think about the Greco-Roman culture. It is a culture of pride and arrogance. We have people like Philip of Macedonia, Alexander the Great, Leonidas of Sparta, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Nero, Mark Antony. These great people are people of arrogance and self-centeredness. The Greco-Roman culture was one of life and indulgence and fulfillment. Money bought you your happiness and your power. Intellect and rationale were the high standards of the day. Socrates penned the phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living. Epicureanism regarded life as a pursuit of pleasure. And so the famous phrase, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you will die. Paul is radically changing their understanding of how they are called to see life. And so you can imagine that Paul's words of eradicating oneself of vain conceit and selfishness, how that would have been received. This is abnormal, and it's an unpopular message, even for today. Because the American culture has been coined as the me-first culture self-centeredness is the norm. As one psychologist put it, society trends to drift away from emphasis on community and the common good and move towards the need to take care of self, perfect oneself, even to the point of self-aggrandizement. 
most of us probably take an involuntary shrug when we, when we hear this, right? Because of course, we're not selfish. We're not self-centered. But I'll, I'll put myself out there and say that I have a tendency not to see the own flaws in my life. That just cognitively doesn't, cognitively doesn't click in here that I might have flaws within me. And so I would dare say that Americans have blind spots of selfishness and pride and self-centeredness. And everything in our culture bends towards this, bends towards our needs, providing for meeting our needs on time, at the right price, without inconvenience for ourselves. We have become a culture of instant gratification. We demand that for our food, for our shopping, for our internet usage, for our cellular signals, for our relationships, for our work, for our cars, all when we want it, when we need it, when we want it right now. In the fall, Hurricane Matthew, to me, was the personification of this. I know that losing water and power and internet makes for a couple tough days, but you would have thought that people were facing the zombie apocalypse with the things they were posting online, which in itself is a bit of irony that even in this um, natural disaster, we still had internet and usage of our smartphones to get on social media. And while Americans were on the eastern seaboard were complaining of their plight and inconvenience for a few days, the death toll in Haiti was literally passing the thousands. We are so easily moved with our temporary discomfort to a posture of complaining. We are a culture marked with cynicism, unaccustomed to hard work and fleeting empathy for people facing more difficult circumstances than we are facing. We live in a culture of self-centeredness, and that is the norm. In one of the previous ministry settings um, I served in, um, we had a conversation um, about how the church could better serve the community. And um, people would often come to the church for food vouchers or in need of shelter. And so we began to have this conversation about what if we could be a church that opened our doors and literally let people sleep on the pews at night as a shelter. And literally, I kid you not, we were, that idea was shot down because we were told that people would mess up our new pew pads if we did that. Or someone might steal the sound equipment that's locked up in, on a second story that you can't literally reach. And so the idea quickly turned to, well, what if we made this particular area of our building that we could uh, lock from the inside, that a person could only come from the outside um, into this one specific room. There would be a bathroom in there, a bed in there. It would be an emergency setting if anybody needed it. The church was really rallying around this, and it came to a business meeting. And after this beautiful opportunity was was presented, this older couple got up and began their 10-minute resistance speech that ended with the simple phrase, not in my church. Before the church can even begin to shift the greater culture around us, we have to admit that we have a tendency to the same vices. It's simple. People who follow Jesus are called to have the mindset of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. We're called to live humble lives. We're called to think serving first instead of self-serving first. And that's what Paul is fighting within this community. Maybe it's what we're fighting within our own lives. Even Jesus faced this. You remember when the disciples were arguing over who could sit next to Jesus in heaven or who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And what did Jesus respond to them? He said, who, whoever will be the most humble, whoever will serve will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That famous phrase, for whoever is first 
shall be last, and whoever is last shall be first. But we fight against this tendency. Instead of putting ourselves before others, we choose to fulfill our needs and wants and desires. Instead of serving, we expect others to do what we need, what we want. And if we don't get it, we complain about it. Instead of putting on the mind of Christ, we fight against it with all of our might. I don't say these words with judgment or condemnation, but as a plea for all of us, myself included, to check our motives. To check to make sure that we are living life the right way. To check to make sure that we are actually living with the mind of Christ. Because what we don't realize is, if we're not living with the mind of Christ, then we're not actually following Christ. We get that, right? And I have to look in the mirror every morning and every evening and see the self-centered decisions I've made in the day and look at myself and realize I chose not to follow Jesus today. I chose to follow self today. So where do we turn for all this? Is there some sort of like New Year's Day catchy like five steps I can give you? I think the message is actually pretty simple from Paul. Follow Jesus is calling us to turn back to Jesus, to turn back to the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection, and the mindset of Jesus. That's what fixes it. There's no Oprah like top 10 ways you can fix yourself in five days. There's no like self-help book we can read. Christ is calling us to simply come back to him, to learn from him. To gather from him all that we are called to be. To begin to value others in the same way we value ourselves. And so as you consider the people around you. As you consider your family. Your children. This church community. Your neighbors. Your co-workers. That really annoying guy in the neighborhood. The troll on social media. That that politician that you don't see eye to eye with. The marginalized people in Clayton. The unpopular people of our culture. The foreigner and the immigrant. Do you value them in the same way that you value yourself? Do you value other people through the eyes of Christ? And so as we come back to Christ, Christ begins to teach us, as Paul is teaching this Philippian church, to take on the mindset of Christ. To put away selfish ambition and vain conceit and to begin to put on humility and service. And it begins in simple ways. It begins with the way that we see others. It begins in the way that we speak to others. Even if you and I made the decision today that each day we are going to try in one way to selflessly serve someone in a way that they will never see, that's the key. We live in a culture that might be willing to serve, but we sure want credit for us. And Christ tells us that if we serve the needy, we shouldn't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. The other thing, and the last thing I want us to draw our attention to from this text is this, is that Paul is not writing to an individual. He's writing to a community of people. And he's calling this community of people, this church in the city of Philippi, to be a community of servants. And so my prayers is that the ancient words of Paul would jostle us into being a community of servants. When I look among you, I see so many who act out in service. 
I think of Don Simpson, who so graciously in simple ways encourages my heart. And I know she is willing to do that for me. She does that for so many of us each and every single day and week. I think of Gina Raper, who basically works a full-time job for Mosaic for free by doing all of our financial stuff. Just gives me a headache even saying the word financial. Math is from the devil. It's in the Bible somewhere. I think of people like Derek and Alan, who every time we need something, it's just they're yes men who, who do it. I think of the people of our worship team who so graciously give of themselves three or four hours a week just to practice and come in here and to lead us in worship. I think of each of you, and I think that we are a community of servants. And so as we consider 2017, may we not see this as a year to resolve to stop doing something in our life, but may we set out in this new year to resolve to take on the mind of Christ. Mind of humility and service. The mind that says, I will put others before myself. The mind that says, I am willing to be God myself and yet sacrifice my life and my sake for the entire world. If Christ can do that, if God, God's self can do that, I think we can just grab on just a little bit to the mind of Christ and transform each other's lives in this community. In selfishness in our lives by bringing on selflessness. In 2017, may we choose to be a community that serves one another through a shared mindset of Jesus. Let's pray together. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.